This is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast, hosted by Roman Prokopchuk, bringing you all things digital marketing, tech, business, and motivation. What's stopping you from becoming relentless in all aspects of life? Are you ready to become a digital savage? Let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, this is Roman Prokopchuk and this is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast. Today I have with me Nicholas Henriksen and Christopher Coleman. They started a company called Carlipso aiming to build the Amazon for used cars. It was acquired by Carvana in 2017 and they're currently working on a project which is in fintech and it is focusing on auto lending in terms of that space and it is called with clutch thank you for joining me today yeah so tell me a little bit about your journeys how did kind of your paths interact you know kind of you cross paths and uh, how did you end up founding your kind of first company and one what made you guys kind of stick together and found this as well great why don't i get started so i'm from i'm nicholas hendrickson originally from germany uh, born and raised in germany my parents are from argentina so it's it's a little bit of an international mix I ended up moving to the U.S. in 2011 to go to business school, and that's where I met Chris. We, we both went to Stanford Business School. I went with a very deliberate intention to go into tech, start a company. And so after spending two years at business school and, and spending a lot of time towards the end of business school with Chris, who was a huge car enthusiast, you should ask him about it in a second, uh, we ended up selling all our classmates' cars. So all our classmates approached Chris with the same question, how do I sell a used car? And since I was sitting next to him when they asked the question, we, we ended up helping our classmates selling their used cars and then stumbled into building a business. It, it all started with one of our advisors um, listening to me and telling me, if you want to make this a business, here's a $50,000 check. And I can tell you the story in more detail later. And then fast forward, we, we thought we started a car company, ended up selling a software company to Carvana. And now, now the entrepreneurial bug has, has bitten again and we want to go out and start all over again. No, it's awesome. And obviously the the partnership was, uh, it worked because you started this together too. Um, is there kind of those things that you're, you know, sticking together for certain traits or how that first business went or what decided for you guys to kind of uh, tackle this together? Yeah, I'll take a spin of that. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's a lot of business partnerships start out, like you don't actually know how you will react throughout the entirety of circumstances. And so I think uh, a is like me and Nick started working together. We just found a good rhythm and working together and we were very good at very different things. And so we rarely step on each other's toes. Um, and so Nick is just the supreme executor where put a number of tasks in front of him and he'll get through N plus one. Um, and I tend to be more like zany idea focused. Uh, and so the combination of those two actually works really well where Nick is tends to be the more like hyper rational executor. And I tend to be the more like off the wall thinker. Um, and then the other thing too, is I, I think like a lot of our business school classmates went through a lot of both ups and downs of starting a business. And I think it's easy if you have a big ego to find lots of reasons for things not to work. And I think we just always had the other mentality of, well, there's every reason this should work and the other person's smart and we respect their input in so many ways. And so why don't we just think through like, how can we get to a data-driven rational answer when we both have that general alignment? And so that's sort of uh, um, why things worked well before 
why we complement each other well post-acquisition and why uh, it's worth diving head in again. So kind of obviously the the first business went through an incubator. Um, do you think you could have gotten it as far or gotten it acquired without that incubator? And what are some of the kind of hurdles you went, you, you overcame to get it acquired? Maybe one of the main things that was a challenge that you kind of overcame. Yeah. So the, the incubator was actually the Y Combinator was Stanford, arguably. Like uh, we started selling our classmates cars. And then I went into a conversation with this advisor I mentioned earlier, asking him for what should I do with my life? I just graduated from business school. I want to do something entrepreneurial. I haven't found a good idea yet. I've been selling these classmates cars. And so we ended up talking 55 out of the 60 minutes about selling cars. And he's like, you don't realize you already have it. Like the, the thing you should be doing is you should be selling cars and here's money to make it happen. And then we, we ended up raising $1.2 million from our professors and lecturers. So arguably the incubator was not Y Combinator for us, but it was our Stanford Business School experience. And then Y Combinator, we, we did for a very, very concrete reason. We, we, we felt like we had product market fit. That means we felt like we had value for customers and we needed to scale the business and we, we weren't happy about the progress we were making. And we thought Y Combinator would help us double down. Um, and so Y Combinator did that. The, the problem is, and this is not Y Combinator's fault, we kind of broke our business by scaling it because a lot of the things we did didn't scale um, and we didn't find a way to scale them. Plus the value proposition wasn't actually as strong as we thought. And so as a result, at the end of the Y Combinator incubator experience, we, we, we did not raise a huge, huge round of capital, which a lot of companies do. We, we raised, I think, $800,000 mainly from partners at YC, pivoted the business. Like we, we got a lifeline of another $800,000 to pivot, try something new, and that worked really well. And so then we raised $8 million, I think, nine months later based on the new business. And so what we, what we had learned through, throughout both experiences, it was very consistent, is our strength and we became better at it while doing it was we're not embarrassed putting something in front of customers to learn. Like we, we move very fast. We learn very quick. Um, we, we're detail-oriented when need be, but we're also willing to just go by intuition and have strong convictions to learn quickly. And I think in a startup, that's the most important thing. You have to have like a vision, a long-term conviction of how the world should look like. That's the overarching, like the mission and vision and the why. But then the day-to-day requires you to learn a lot and move quickly and try a lot of things. And so we, I think we were good at it and we became much better at it through the two experiences. So why now kind of the pivot to the, uh, you know, fintech space in terms of auto lending? Did you find a need? Was it something you're kind of passionate about or went through? What made you kind of go in that direction in terms of founding with Clutch? Yeah, I think, yeah, this, I mean, this is an idea that has been itching with us for a long time. And so like, uh, and so we saw firsthand how it impacted consumers. And so one of the things to keep in mind when you get an auto loan is when you get an auto loan, there's two things that are predominantly sort of uh, impacting you. One is the dealer is actually has a lot more information than you do around which loans are available. And so even from day one, and we face this being a dealer ourselves, like the dealer is choosing between a loan that's best for the consumer and a loan that's best for the dealership. And so inherently, like dealerships are low margin, hard businesses. And so, you know, they're trying as much as they want to be the consumer advocate in every way. The reality is they choose things that are best for them often. And so 
even on day one, many consumers end up in loans, which are not the best loan they could have got for themselves. And then two, there's like two types of customers who typically end up in segments um, in sort of what I'll call like worse credit segments. And so um, there's situationally bad credit and then there's behaviorally bad credit. And so there's a lot of people who just through circumstance or bad luck or a combination thereof end up with bad credit. And so the moment they go to get their auto loan, uh, you know, at that moment in time, they're actually, they're paying a high interest rate because they're evaluated just for that moment in time. But that doesn't mean for the next 72 months, you need to pay for those decisions. Instead, what we saw is, hey, if people are, if people are actually good about making their auto loans, they're subsidizing people who are behaviorally bad credit. And so instead of doing that, we thought, can we not just cherry pick this audience and say, hey, you know, actually, you've demonstrated good behavior for a while. Why don't we reevaluate what your circumstance is now 18 months later after you first chose that car? And so that means we can get you in a better loan um, in a very seamless way. And that's what really prevented people from doing it before. Like A, a lack of awareness. And then B, the process to do it was quite painful. And so people would just continue paying $50 a month too much. But you know, over 72 months at $3,500 that they're paying in, in, in excess interest. Um, and so that's that's what we really set out to do with with Clutch. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in terms of kind of the car buying process, that's the most uh, painful part. And you're not given, obviously, the options. You're kind of at the mercy of the finance department, and you don't necessarily know what your choices are, like you said. Yeah, a few times. I mean, I think my next car, when I get it, I think I'm just going to buy it outright, honestly, because I don't want to deal with with nonsense. So, but or just run the car I have into the ground and figure it out. But so, what motivates you guys to succeed currently? For, I'd be, I'd be, I'm curious to hear what Chris answers. Why don't I start? So, we, I think I got lucky so many times in life. So just in the last say seven years or so getting into Stanford is arguably a lot of luck. Um, that's at least how I perceive it. And then I made a ton of friends, um, met these incredibly interesting, impressive, impressive, very inspiring, very inspiring, very inspiring. Then at the end of the business school experience, one of our lecturers said, you guys need to understand you have this incredible plan B, like you can take any job in tech or in consulting if you want to with a resume now. So your responsibility is to, try to have impact, do bigger things, start a company, for example, and be impactful because if that works out, you have this incredible upside and you you're always have good downside protection. And so back then, I, I got into the car space opportunistically and quickly changed my view to, this is just a really bad customer experience as is, and I think the world deserves a better experience. And so that's what motivated me back then. Over the course of running our own company in the last three years, uh, being an employee at Carvana, I, I've I've had the chance to interact with segments of the population that that I don't know very well because, admittedly, I, I live a little bit in the bubble in San Francisco. Um, a lot of people in the US struggle with their finances, personal finances. Uh, a lot of people have challenged credit, and it's very very difficult to get out of bad credit. It's actually a downward spiral once you have bad credit. Life just becomes harder, and I think that's incredibly unfair. And so, what motivates me today is to to like use my time in order to help people who, who are in less fortunate situation than I am, and then hopefully address this ever widening income uh, inequality gap, if that makes sense. Yep, that makes sense. What about you, Chris? Um, for me, I think it's two things. One is um, 
Like it's the intersection of my personal development and learning with something that I find meaningful. And so like meaning can come in a lot of different ways. Like whether for me, it's whether, you know, scientific achievement, helping individuals, um, feeling like I'm producing a product that brings joy. Like I, I worked, I worked at a supercar manufacturer and everybody could say that's just, you know, for vain rich people. But the reality is I think it's for little kids in more ways than not. Like it's about bringing out the tiny, the tiny kid and just joy and adults. Um, and so, um, for me, it's really where those two things come together. So I'm always looking for a new challenge and something to sort of push myself and new understanding and, um, a, a, a new challenge to take on. And then two, I've got to believe in the underlying product itself. So like you, I don't think you could get me at a tobacco company. Um, and so those, those are the things that, uh, that drive me. Yeah, I think it's important in terms of those motivations and uh, kind of constantly redefining yourself because I think most uh, founders, when they exit or sell a first company, they usually do something else. They don't usually like go retire and sit on the beach. They usually, you know, try to combat something else and think it's constantly important in terms of kind of personal growth and personal uh, gratification and uh, having a meaningful life when you find another project or something you're passionate about and try to undertake that as well. Yeah. I mean, beaches are great, but only for a few days. Right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do get, I mean, I was in Hawaii for like two weeks. I have family there actually in the North shore of Oahu. I mean, I can, I think I can permanently re, uh, relocate there for a while, but I don't know how I can be uh, on an island for, for more than a year or two. So it feels like a pandemic when you're locked in, huh? <laughs> Yep. I mean, I think if this was like, let's say 10, 20 years ago, it'd be a little different dynamic, but in terms of the ad, uh, advancements in technology and social media, it's, it's a little bit easier in terms of communication. Agreed. So what's one thing you guys may have seen as weaknesses in yourself in the past that you've turned around and utilized as a strength today? I know, obviously, you said both of you do certain things well and kind of, you know, complement each other. What are some of the things you may have seen or, you know, maybe struggled with that you've uh, realized and kind of now used to your benefit? That's a good question. There's a lot of weaknesses we could talk about. <laughs> Uh, I think there's two things worth mentioning for me. I'm curious what Chris has to say. So, um, and Chris will not recognize that side of me. So I, I think this will be fun. I used to be incredibly detail oriented. Like when, when I was in college, I did these jobs where I would spend lots of time in spreadsheets and was optimizing things. And like, I got a kick out of just getting everything right. And so I, even as part of my business school application, I think I wrote that I often get sucked into details and lose, lose sight of the big picture. Um, th that doesn't work very well in early stage startups because A, you wear tons of different hats and you're not looking for like optimization, little improvements. You look for step change, very binary outcomes. Does a customer want what I have? Yes or no. And, and, and so I, I think the startup experience pushed me towards a direction where, where I'm, I'm looking for the big step changes rather than optimizing for the details. And so I think now I ended up at a, a place which is at the very other end of the spectrum where, where I'm, I, I prefer outsourcing tasks that need a lot of attention to detail to other people who, who still get a kick out of it, who are much better at it than me. And I think I'm, I'm spending my time most efficiently on tasks where we just need to figure out whether this works, yes or no. Um, does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. Yeah, I think for for me, I think I used one. I get to uh, like a. I talk out loud for everything that I'm thinking through, and I think that can annoy other people. And so that's one thing that I've just learned to temper internally. And that's a small one. The other thing I would say is I used to be sort of over optimistic, and so when we like when we first started our business, everything had to go right for us to make money. And the reality is you can't count on everything going right. And so like get, getting to this endless optimization of if we only get another five, another 10, another 20% here, 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 it will work out. And to me, it was so obvious it was going to happen. And then yet it never happened. Um, and so I think like I've grown a healthy skepticism of like, hey, opportunities that I think I want to pursue are more around those where there is some forgiveness for getting some of these things wrong and being able to account for more slack in the system rather than this like perfection of optimization that I had sort of built my expectations around. And so now um, I think I'm a little more realistic and a little more tempered in how I think about what to pursue and why to pursue it and how to accommodate for like just these known issues that always pop up. Yeah, that makes sense. So what's one piece of advice you guys can give for the audience, personal or professional, something maybe that you've seen in terms of when you founded your company for someone to avoid in terms of a pitfall, anything personal, things of that nature? I think the two are actually incredibly related. And that, that's also my, my advice here. When you start a company, your company becomes your identity. Chris and I, and I think that's true for every fund that we ended up working so much and we, 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 we went to bed thinking about the company. We dreamt about the company. We got up in the morning thinking about the company. Early stage, you, you, you have so many little failures and you forget celebrating the little victories and wins, successes. And so I think different people need to do different things. But I personally know for myself, I need to put effort into avoiding that my identity becomes my company. Otherwise, everybody's happy on weekends and celebrating birthdays. And I don't feel happy because the company is in one of these phases of the roller coaster where we're struggling. So if, if you can, for me, it means working out. For me, it means meditating. For me, it means spending time with friends. Try to make a very deliberate effort in, in, in separating personal life and the company. Because you, you, you need like this time to recharge. And that's what friends and free time is for. And if, if, if you spend that same time worrying about the same company that you're trying to build, um, then that, that will be a very unhealthy dynamic. Yeah. And one other thing I would echo is just these things always take time. Like everybody reads about them. It's hard. It's easy to put pressure on yourself thinking, man, that was just an overnight success story. And, you know, why can't I do that and continually be comparing yourself to, to other people and obvious stories. But the truth is the stories are always non-obvious, A, like they're only obvious in retrospect. And then B, these things just take a lot of time. And so like when you commit to doing something, you should almost have a 10-year life cycle of like, I, I want to do it for these reasons. This general purpose is meaningful. I'm going to be walking towards there and sort of you need to have do a combination of like sprint where you know there's rewards and slow down where you're, you have high degree of uncertainty. Um, and so like both of these paradigms exist. They're simultaneously frustrating, but like, just take a big step back. Remember that anything great worth building takes time to build. 
Yeah, I agree. And obviously, like you said, I think it's the long game and people often just see the successes of certain companies or certain people and kind of that social media effect. So you just see the uh, the highlight reel, basically. You don't see all the, you know, long hours or sleepless nights or all the struggles that, uh, you know, companies had to go through to kind of grow and get to where they were, get to where they are. Right. Yeah. And, and I think people forget too that like a lot of the value of any company is created like in the later stages, right? Like, and so like people look to Facebook as getting public as a big story, but the reality is they've added, you know, six, 500 billion in market cap since that point. And so like, that's where the, the major leverage has been going from big to even bigger. Yeah, I agree. And then I oftentimes talk about kind of uh, the mental health and uh, just mental health in general of startup founders, company founders, executives. How important has that been to you? Because obviously the kind of entrepreneur games, you know, being a founder is a lonely road. So how are you kind of um, been able to keep your mental health kind of in check and, uh, you know, focused? Two thoughts here. Um, There's this there's this really good article from one of the big venture capitalists, uh, Ben Horowitz, that's titled the, the biggest challenge of a startup founder is to manage your own psychology. And I, I would argue there's a lot, a lot of truth to that. My first thought is like, I, I don't think I could do this by myself. It's just too hard. And then having Chris as a partner for, for so many reasons, we're very complimentary. We're very good friends. But we also have times where one person feels like devastated and the other one feels like a high and vice versa. And so having a partner to balance out these, 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 these roller coaster rides, I think that's incredibly important, both for the business, but for your own sanity as well. And then, as I said earlier, it's important to distinguish between personal life and, um, and, and, and your, your, your startup and your profession, basically. The most successful founders, they feel fearless when they work in the business. And so in order to be fearless and like be really aggressive in a positive way, um, you, you need this balance. You need to be able to come home and know that you're in a good place. There's a community taking care of you. And so that's, I think, incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, like you said, that that's, that's correct. And I think that that direction, because... Uh, like I said, in terms of mental health, I think there's, and outside of uh, founding a company or running a company, mental health is kind of a overlooked thing in the United States and globally and uh, what thing where people are going through. So I think it's important to kind of be the best you can be. And like you said, separate that personal and professional so you can be the best leader and then the best person to your friends and families and, and those around you as well. It's, it's interesting what you said because so you said mental health is a little bit neglected in the U.S. I actually think the U.S. is doing a much better job at it than, than Europe. Europe, in Germany, for example, people don't go to the therapist. And if they do, they don't talk about it. Huge stigma. It's so bad that if, if you do go to the therapist and you have your public health insurance pay for it, like it's public record. And all of a sudden you'll have problems getting like renewing your health insurance. You have problems getting a life insurance. Um, and should be the other way around, right? People seeking help and working on themselves are, should be at lower risk. Um, and so there I applaud the U.S. at least, the sides of the coast, New York and San Francisco, for, for, for being very progressive. I have friends who work in this space, and, and I think it's impressive what they do. So there's always need for more, but the U.S. actually is a little bit ahead of at least Europe 
to the extent I can, I can, I can comment on it. Yeah, I think there's certain stigmas, especially in, I guess, Central Europe, especially I'm from Eastern Europe, where people don't necessarily talk about their feelings, or they're very stoic. So, I mean, there's oftentimes I have to kind of force myself in terms of like smiling or being a little bit more upbeat, because I may be like inside, super happy, but people around me is like, why is he like, what is he upset or he's not enjoying the situation that's going on. So I think there's a lot it's of that going on. Yeah. Yep. I have a good friend, funny that you said that, a very good friend of Chris and mine, actually. He worked in Moscow for a while, and so he would leave his apartment, go to the little kiosk with a smile on his face, order coffee and a newspaper, and people were really rude to him. And one day, he had a really bad day and was really short, so like, newspaper, coffee, please. And all of a sudden, for the first time, the guy working at the kiosk smiles back at him and greets him. And then he's like, what's going on? He's like, well, today's the first time you're not laughing about me, so that makes me happy. He's like, oh, it's just happy. He's like, yeah culturally that it looks like you were laughing about me I'm like, it's like <laughs> no. so yeah it's very, very different in different cultures yeah i mean that's interesting to really understand also if you're doing business globally to understand those kind of cultural differences and how you interact in terms of having a you know kind of emotional empathy and building on your kind of emotional iq as well to kind of read those signals so I really appreciate you guys stopping by today. Can you let the audience know how they can find you or how they can find more about your current business venture? Sure. So Chris, they can find, Chris at me, they can find a LinkedIn. Chris is Chris Coleman. Uh, I myself, Nicholas Henriksen. Love to connect, um, increase the community, help where we can get feedback. Feedback is a gift. So if anybody has thoughts, um, you would consider it a gift. So thanks for that. And our new company is called WithClutch, www.withclutch.com. And if you want to refinance your auto loan or just check in and see if you can save on your monthly payments, feel free to stop by. Awesome. Thanks again for stopping by, guys. Robert, cool. Pleasure. This podcast has been brought to you by Nova Zora Digital. Find out how Nova Zora Digital can help your company grow online. Learn more at NovaZoraDigital.com. Until next time, all you digital savages.